tell you what you're listening to welcome to father simon says on relevant radio with father richard simon i'm here to answer your questions have a question give us a call 1-888-914-9149 that's any question you may have about the lord the faith and the church that's 1-888-914-9149 this is in fact a radio show called father simon says on relevant radio Well, hello. At the risk of sounding tedious, I just want to say thank you again. That that pledge drive was astonishing, and it is it is so gratifying to, well, I guess, just to realize that that uh, there's so many people pulling together uh, in 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 the work of of bringing the gospel. Um, to the airwaves into the country and the world. So it's such an honor uh, to play a small part in that. So again, thank you for your generosity. We we hit our goal and uh, then a plus, plus a little and just, it, it is always very gratifying. So with that said, let us pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now, and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Well, all right. Let's do it. Let's open the big book on the coffee table. All right. Where are we here? Oh, oh, in the big book. You know the one on the coffee table. So we are in the book of Revelations now. Yipe. <laughs> this, is, this is a good one. Well, first of all, let me point out that this reading really does jump. We have the first four verses of the first chapter, and then we go to the first five verses of the second chapter. So let's look at it as we heard it in the in the uh, reading this morning at Mass, and then we'll take a, a quick peek at some of the things uh, that were left out. <clears throat> Again, there is things are left out not for censorship, but to to get people a, a, a feel and a taste for the whole text. You know, I when I taught uh, dead languages to comatose seminarians, I they really were. It was the period right after lunch. It took a lot of work to keep them awake, a lot of yelling for no good reason. But it was fun. But I digress. So uh, the uh, um, I looked at myself as as more a salesman than a teacher. If if you can convince someone to be interested in in it, they'll become their own teachers. You know, I think it is the best the best way to teach is to is to point out this is this is something that you're going to like and i'm going to say that about the text of scripture so i really would encourage you whenever you you 
come from Mass or are going to Mass, especially daily Mass, even if you can't get to daily Mass, look at the readings at the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops site. And I tell you where to go on the on the on the website. You 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 go to daily readings, and then you go to reading one, and you click on the little the little uh, code that's on the right side of the screen. This is RV one colon one four comma two colon one five. It sounds like some sort of strange code. It's not. It's their biblical citations. Revelation, the first chapter, first to the fourth verses. And then the comma and the second chapter, verse 1 to 5. But if you click on that, I tell you this all the time, if you click on that, you will get the whole reading. And and I really encourage you to read it because the scripture, what did St. Jerome say? To be ignorant of scripture is to be ignorant of Christ. Now, <clears throat> the book of Revelation can get a little confusing. So let us go to... Um, Another section of scripture. This is John, the 14th chapter, the gospel of John, the 14th chapter, the 29th verse. And I, I firmly believe that, that um, John, the beloved disciple, in essence, wrote the gospel. Now, he, we know from early Christian literature that he was considered a, a, a rabbi, a philosopher by the Greeks, and he had he had students, uh, and so the Gospel of John may have been written by John through his students, but it, it's it's the pro, it's the project of John, and it's it's the work of Saint John. And there's all sorts of dispute that was there the elder John, where it was John the beloved disciple, and some of the early Christian fathers kind of said, "Well, these are two different Johns," but I have no problem with the general tradition that that. This is the same the same fellow. Um, so that's my assumption. <laughs> Enjoy your own assumption. Oh, but let's get to the text. In the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter, the 29th verse, a very important verse in the scriptures. John 14, 29. Jesus says at the Last Supper, I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you may believe. Remember, the word believe means trust. I have told you now before it happens. He's, he's going away. So that when it does happen, you will trust. That verse is absolutely pivotal for understanding prophetic utterances and visions in the Christian context. God does not give us visions to tell us what will happen in clear terms. Again, please forgive me. I'm an old man and retell the same old stories but I've told you about the, the little kid who, in Yemen, when, when uh, the enemies of, of the Jews, there was a large Yemenite Jewish community that had been there since first temple times, possibly. Well, they were being, uh, when, when Israel was declared independence and it was, its statehood was recognized by the United Nations, the enemies of the Jews surrounded this little Yemenite community and they, they all hustled to the airport, uh, which was just a landing strip, and the, the, the British planes uh, began to come in to airlift them to the Holy Land. Um, otherwise, they would have all been slaughtered. Uh, and a little, there was a, a, an old story that, uh, um, an old prophecy among the Yemenis uh, that, that 
birds with silver wings would come to, to fly them back to the Holy Land. And as these planes are landing, this little kid tugs on his mother's his sleeve and says, "Mummy, look! It's it's the the birds with the golden with the with the silver wings. Those were not birds with silver wings. Those were airplanes." Some of us have the souls of poets, and some of us do not. You see, when a prophet sees something. He sees it, he's looking again through a veil, and he's trying to compare the things he sees to something earthly. He's trying to convey a heavenly reality in an earthly, in an earthly vocabulary. And so he saw a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, and, uh, well, I, I keep my eyes open for... Deformed lambs that have seven horns and seven eyes. That's not what he's saying. That, that, that uh, you know, I, I've never had a vision, but I've known people who've had very authentic visions. Again, I, this is a story I, I'm sure I've told you. I was a young priest working very hard, and that's no longer the case. But I was a young priest and working very, very hard, and I I just said, no, the voice man, I'm no longer young. <laughs> that's what, and I'm no longer working hard. Uh, but uh, the, the, um, uh, this this woman who had a prophetic gift uh, came up to me and said, Father Rich, I've been praying for you. And I was thinking, oh, good Lord, I really need your, your confirmation for all that I'm doing. And she said that she saw me in a red sports car and all this sports equipment like goggles and helmets and flippers all at once. And the Lord wanted to say that I was not doing anything that he wanted me to do. I was simply playing at it. And though that's ridiculous. I've never owned a red sports car. You know, and I i don't wear flippers. And, you know, I got exactly what she was saying, that she had seen a reality conveyed to her by the Lord about my my failure to do his will. And and that was that was she saw the truth through these symbols. So, you know, I, I get the biggest kick out of when people try to say, well, in this prophecy, clearly this represents the Soviet Union, and this represents yada yada, and that represents red China. And no, it doesn't. We won't know what it represents until it happens. The point of prophecy is so that when we when we see it, we can go, oh, yeah, he, Jesus warned us about this. Don't worry. You can trust him. So you can read too much into this, and you can read too little into it. You know, it's just just craziness. It's not craziness. There are biblical principles throughout the book of Revelation. So, that said, let us look at the reading itself from Revelation. Uh, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants what must happen soon. Well, clearly this is about an imminent, imminent uh, 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 return of the Lord. Not necessarily. That 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 from God's perspective, these things are soon. And I love what Doctor Hahn says about these these prophetic words. And uh, we're going to talk about one of them in the Word of the Day. That they really are more about the destruction of Jerusalem. They 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 have a meaning in the time that they were given. They have a meaning in the time in which we find ourselves now. They have a meaning for a future yet to come. So uh, these these seven letters were very clearly uh, addressed to a present situation. And the first is the church in Ephesus. 
Um, so the church in Ephesus uh, um, was a very, very uh, prominent church, apparently, that St. Paul had worked there, St. John had worked there, and uh, they kind of thought they were all that in a side of fries. Well, this is very interesting. You have tested those who call themselves apostles but are not. Remember the word missionary is what the word apostle means, someone who sent out. But it's a little more than we think of as a missionary. This is someone who is delegated. They're given a real authority. And um, uh, there probably would have been an ordination involved with it. They were sent out. And my impression is that people in the first generation of Christians called themselves apostles if they had been delegated by Christ. And and we read about the 70 apostles, the 72 apostles. You can look it up. Uh, uh, we tend to call them 72 disciples, but the Eastern Church calls them the 72 uh, um, apostles, or the 70 apostles. It varies in the lists of the names. And so we see throughout Scripture, again, I've shared this with you before, uh, the phrase, the 12. You rarely see the phrase 12 apostles. I think that appears maybe four times in the scriptures, but you see the word, the 12, a lot. There was a governing body established by Christ of the 12. All of the 12 were missionaries, that is, apostles, but not all of the missionaries were members of the 12. There were a lot more missionaries than 12. Uh, and for missionary, read apostle. So, there are all these people going around saying that they were, well, Jesus told me to do this. No, he didn't. <laughs> uh, that's like Sherman's March to the Sea. Hundreds of miles away from where Sherman marched to the sea will say, yes, my great-granddaddy said Sherman burned his farm down when, <laughs> no, he didn't. He was never even there. Uh, that uh, There was a lot more attributed to Sherman's March to the Sea than actually happened. Uh, so, um, though he did march to the scene, he did burn things down. Never, I don't want to get into a fight about that with any of our listeners down there. But uh, the uh, um, I'm not calling him a good guy. But that said, uh, um, there are all sorts of people who said, "Well, Jesus delegated me." I, I I didn't hear about that, and I was well, and that was one of the problems with Saint Paul. He wasn't one of the delegated apostles. They thought. God had delegated him through his vision of Christ on the Damascus Road in the unique and special delegation. So he was truly an apostle, even though he wasn't a follower of Jesus when Jesus was in the flesh. So um, the, the, uh, uh, the Ephesians had gotten, well, they'd gotten sophisticated. Um, they, they haven't grown weary, but they, the, the, the author still holds this against them. Against them, you have lost the the love you had at first. I realize how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and move your lampstand from its place. I think this is a real important word from God for us, because so often we think that that by doing the business of religion that we are being religious and spiritual. I remember a young man who's now an old man, but back in the early days of the Pentecostal movement, this poor guy, he was, he was, there was a little old lady group and, and somehow he got dragged into it and they made him the head of the group. And, uh, he was in the seminary at the time. So of course he was a seminarian and knew everything. And 
he just had to arbit the fights with these little old ladies, and and um, um, he had to set up, make sure the book table was set up, the music ministry was there, and all this stuff. And he was just so so tired of it. And I, I said to him, you know, when you close your eyes in the sleep of death, what are you going to see? He says, well, Jesus, yeah, that's who you're doing it for. When you lose the perspective that you're doing this for Christ, then you might as well not do it. You know, I find people who love the church greatly, and this is a good thing to love the church because she's the bride of Christ. But they think that by loving the organization, they're loving Christ and his bride. And they treat the faithful, they treat, you know, uh, people who... who um, come into the ministries, they treat them shabbily because, well, this is about the job. No, it's not. It's about the relationship. It's about the relationship. I hold this against you. You have lost the love you had at first. Realize how far you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Otherwise, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Just because I'm really working on the committee doesn't mean I'm pleasing the Lord. You may be driving around in a spiritual red sports car with uh, a football helmet on your head and uh, flippers on your feet and goggles like I was. The business of religion, God can do that without you, but he wants you to join him in the love of Christ and his bride. All right. Oh, just one more little bit and then I'll, I'll, I'll go to break, but... Uh, this this reading is so beautiful. In Luke, the 18th chapter, the blind man, Jesus, is passing by. And he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have pity on me. And people <laughs> walking in front, they were walking in front. You know, they were leading the procession into town, into Jericho with the great rabbi. Go away, kid, you bother me, to quote uh, W.C. Fields. And he wouldn't shut up. And so Jesus, Jesus, that's the thing about Jesus. He was able to, I remember a story about, about, uh, Pope St. John Paul the Great, that um, uh, there was a little girl who was was uh, deaf and mute, as I recall the story. And um, she sent a letter to the Pope and a little drawing she had made of their farm in Italy. And it actually got to the Pope's desk somehow. And he just looked at that and, and just took it in. And then not long after that, uh, he was at one of the audiences, and these are huge crowds of people, and he stopped, and he looked, and he went over, and he took this little girl. It was the girl who had written the letter. And he took that girl by the head and began to pray for her and then moved on. Next day, the mother, the mother calls frantically. She calls whoever you call at the Vatican and said, my, my daughter can hear. She can hear. Uh, um, that quality of being able to see the person. This was the quality of Jesus. The important people are walking in front, the grand procession with the rabbi. But Jesus was able to see someone. And so often people who think they're great in the world, they walk right by the people whom God has called them to see. And this guy says, I want to see. But the word is very interesting in Greek. It's anablepso. It means to look up or to see again. It can mean either thing. And Jesus answered him, then see. 
but you know, it's a combination of to see again and to look up, look up. Uh, he wanted to see beyond what was in front of him, and and that that I think is an important word in the text. And Jesus says, "Your faith has saved you." He didn't say, "I've saved you," but your trust has saved you. You know that it is. Oh, I I could go on a long time on this, but faith is to put our hand in His hand. You know, uh, if you're I, oh, I'm I can't stop. You know, I I've shared that thing about when when the scripture says we're saved in hope, and picture yourself sinking in a pool of quicksand, and somebody comes through the bushes with the exact uh, um. Uh, with the with the clear intention of pulling you out of the quicksand you say i'm safe well technically you're not not till you're standing on the bank of the pool of quicksand embracing your savior but he extends his hand to you and you take his hand his hand to you is grace your hand reaching up to him is faith you're trusting that he won't yank his hand away and say i just came to watch you drown no you you that's what faith is that's what trust is, to put your hand in his hand. It's it's relational. It isn't just, oh, yeah, this is, I signed on to the creed. I guess I get to see. <clears throat> no, 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 no. Your faith has saved you. You're putting your hand in my hand. His hand to us is grace. Our hand to him is faith. It is trust. That said, we're going to go to a break. We'll come back with some letters and long explanations of complicated things. It's fun. I have a good time. Hope you do. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by the Catholic Order of Foresters Flexible Premium Life Insurance. For less than $12 a month, a 40-year-old can get a half million dollars of coverage. Go to relevantradio.com slash forester today. An Illinois Life Insurance Society, not available in all states. Oh, come let us go back to God. Go back to oh, God. Come on. Let's go back to God. Let us go back. Let's go back to God. Come on. Let's go back to God. I think that's a very good suggestion. Let us go back to God. Well, except at the moment... <laughs> No disrespect intended, Lord. We're going to go to letters. This is a letter from Matt asking about scapulars. I think you've mentioned this previously, but when it comes to a scapular, I believe that the metal one is acceptable as opposed to the brown scapular, as long as it contains two particular images, the Sacred Heart of Jesus, another one I'm unsure of. What's the official ruling on the acceptance of the metal scapular? It is... Uh, acceptable. It should have the image of our Lord and of our Blessed Mother. And Pius X said it was acceptable, but uh, um, you should have it blessed with a specific blessing, if possible, for the uh, the scapular uh, uh, spirituality in which you are enrolled. So there you go. Now, let's see here. I got a a letter from uh, Hugh. Uh, it's he says during mass I heard uh, in a homily a little something about the rights of the Catholic Church. A couple decades ago, I received a schematic put together by a Byzantine Catholic priest in the Bay Area. What do you think? Well, 
Okay, we are going to explain rites of the church, spelled R-I-T-E-S, from a Latin word, ritus, which means uh, essentially a way of worshiping. So that's that's what that means, uh, a rite of the church, R-I-T-E, not R-I-G-H-T, as in it's the church's rite. So that, that, that said, um, uh, let me see, get my spectacles on, hold on, because it's fine print. The chart that Hugh sent me um, has four churches coming from Jerusalem. Jerusalem's at the top of the chart. And it has number two, the Roman Rite, three, Antiochian Rite, four, Alexandrian Rite, and fifth, Byzantine Rite. Now, uh, the Byzantine Rite then filters off into the Bulgarian, the Slavonic, the Greek the Italo-Albanian Greek Rite, the Melkite Syrians and Arabic, the Romanians, the Russians, Slavonic, the Ruthenians, Ukrainians, and the or, uh, the the Byzantine uh, vernacular Rite in the in the states. Okay, now let us take a deep breath. Byzantine is a word that was never used at the time. It's it's a much later word, almost modern. Constantinople. Oh, dear, this is going to be very tedious history, but it's interesting. Constant, there were three major cities in the ancient Roman Empire. Alexandria, founded by Alexander the Great a few hundred years before Christ. Antioch, founded by one of the successors of Alexander in Syria. Uh, and then Rome, founded 750 B.C., ballpark. Uh, by Romulus and Remus. And as you know, Rome gradually took over the entire Mediterranean world and had an empire that reached from Iraq to Spain and from Germany down into Africa, uh, the, the Mediterranean coast of Africa and Egypt. Now, that said, the language of that empire was Greek all the way up to around Syria in the north and the Jordan Rift Valley going through the Holy Land. East of that, though they spoke Greek, the more common language of trade was Aramaic, a close relative of Hebrew. Okay, you're with me so far, I hope. Well, the apostles, about whom we have spoken, the missionaries, they went all over the place. And what they did was found churches and I suspect there was a basic understanding of the liturgy, which probably came from uh, Jewish practices. I suspect the synagogue service uh, with the the uh, 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 the Sabbath meal blessings attached, uh, they modified it according to their needs. But, you know, it was kind of a synagogue service combined with... with uh, 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 prayers for the sacrifice of thanksgiving. So, okay, basic basic liturgy. And they would have had a basic kind of way to chant, which came from the temple. That persisted, I suspect, from in most places in the first century. Then things began to develop according to the, the local custom. And, and, you know, people think, well communications weren't that good. They were fine. Communications were great in the Roman Empire. Uh, it was actually easier in the Roman Empire to get a letter from Italy to Egypt than probably than it, until, until very recently. 
Um, if you ever tried to send a postcard home from Italy, you probably got home before the postcard did. But again, Rome was not really well located. The great population centers and cultural centers were Greek-speaking. Uh, actually, in Rome at the time of Christ, there were more people probably speaking Greek than Latin. It was a great cosmopolitan city that had people from everywhere. But Rome really wasn't in the middle of things, and that was a problem. So the capital of Rome moved around a bit. The capital of Rome was really where the emperor was commanding the troops at the time. So... Um, Ultimately, in the squabble over who was going to be empire, emperor, uh, a fellow named Constantine won. His mother was a Christian, and he had a miraculous experience that pro converted him to Christ. I, I used to, he had a vision. I used to think, oh, that was just cynical, you know, taking advantage of the church. But I've come to believe it was a very genuine vision. And Constantine decided to move the capital in a permanent way to a place in the middle of the empire where Turkey met Greece, where the Black Sea met the Mediterranean Sea. It was one of the great crossroads. And there was a small city there called Byzantium. That is why these Eastern churches are called Byzantine uh, because they, they take their name from Byzantium. And that name was not given them uh, uh, until almost modern times, and and uh, it, it's sometimes it, I, I've known people who go to the Byzantine liturgy uh, who find that name insulting. But uh, you know I don't want to get into that right now. We'll use the term Byzantine for want of a better term. Well, on this chart that I was sent, we see Jerusalem. And then we see the Roman Rite, the Antiquian Rite, number three, number four, Alexandrian Rite, and then the Byzantine Rite. The Byzantine Rite, properly speaking, did not exist before the establishment of uh, the establishment of uh, Constantinople. However, the elements of it were there. Um, it, the people people want to know what the oldest form of the mass is. Well, yeah, you can you can play the play the the, the old Roman chant, uh, Nick. I think it's breathtakingly beautiful, but that is old Roman chant. I thought Gregorian chant was the oldest form of chant. No, Gregorian chant was a fourth century, fifth century, a uh, fifth century simplification that is much easier to sing. Say that again, Nick. What was that? Yeah, practically modern by our standards. The chant that you just heard sounds what we would call Byzantine. It sounds Greek or Russian, and it was. Now, what I'm really trying to say here is that this quest to see what the most ancient forms of the faith are is kind of pointless because, you know, the Western church has changed its liturgical style, a, a monastic simplification uh, attributed to Gregory the Great, hence Gregorian chant, um, whereas the, the liturgy of Antioch and Alexandria really kind of combined 
to create what we would now call the, the Byzantine liturgy, the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom. He was originally from Cappadocia, which was just a stone's throw, as it were, well, a, a very long stone's throw, from Antioch. And uh, uh, St. Basil of Cappadocia also contributed to the liturgy. And they talk about the liturgy of St. James of Jerusalem, which really didn't exist till the 4th century B.C. You see, Jerusalem wasn't one of the original three patriarchates because it was destroyed in 70 A.D. and then completely destroyed about 110 uh, when, or 120 when, when Hadrian, Emperor Hadrian built a new city over it uh, from which Jews were forbidden, called Aelia Capitolina. So there was, in a sense, no Jerusalem church uh, the, the refugees of the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD fled to to the north, to Syria, uh, in which you find Antioch, to Lebanon, and to the Transjordan. I actually had parishioners who can trace their ancestors back to the siege of Jerusalem. But the church in Jerusalem vanished uh, as an effective force. There was no bishop of Jerusalem after one... Uh, 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 well, after I, there may have, I'm trying to think of after 70 AD, I'd, I'd have to look that up. Now, what am I trying to say here? There was a common liturgy, and I think it is just a theory. Take it with many grains of salt. But St. Peter, thank you, is thought of as the the founder of the three patriarchal cities. He lived and worked in Antioch for quite a while. In fact, there are still people in the city of Antioch, which is now in southern Turkey, uh, which is one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. There are people in Antioch who claim to be descended from St. Peter, and they may well be. He then moved on to Rome, where he was ultimately arrested and executed. His assistant... It is the tradition holds went to Alexandria and organized the church there, so there were three uh, 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 patriarchal sees established by Saint Peter, Antioch, Alexandria, and Rome, and all of the liturgies of the church more or less descend from their contact with those three places. Some of them are combinations. Some of them are not. Antioch and and Egypt seem to have exchanged a lot of a lot of uh, uh, liturgical practices, possibly, but there's no way to tell. But those were the three patriarchal seas, and they were Petrine. And the reason that the early church venerated Rome from the time of Saint Irenaeus of Lyon on was because Peter and Paul had both been involved in establishing that that. Uh, patriarchate and uh, uh, this was the tradition that they held from the very beginning that Rome was certainly the in the words of Saint Irenaeus of Lyon that that diocese that see s-e-e -E, uh, with which all churches had to agree but the liturgy it came from a common I believe a common liturgy which developed in different places according to their their needs and the the Byzantine liturgy developed after the establishment of the uh, of of the city of Constantinople, and Constantinople is not considered a patriarchate until I think was at 451 A.D. the Council of Chalcedon. So, but that doesn't 
that doesn't affect anything. These are ancient liturgies, and we have been doing this since the beginning. I don't know if that's at all illustrative, uh, but uh, now you know a little bit about where the rites of the church, the R-I-T-E-S of the church, come from. They they descend from the three C's, one in Europe, Rome, one in Asia, Antioch, one in Africa, Alexandria. There you go. Uh, I'm winded. Let's go to a break, and I'll come back with a word of the day. Oh, the phones are open at 888-914-9149-888-914-9149. Today we'd like to thank Mario, who's listening in New Jersey, for donating his Buick. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com slash car. Amen. Thank you for being a friend and for your generosity that keeps this ministry going. Bless you. That pledge drive was amazing, and your kindness is is so much appreciated. Well, all right, let us go to the word of the day. Give me a word. Any word, and I show you how the root of that word is Greek. Amen. The root of that word is Greek. <laughs> Well, at least in the Bible it is, uh, the New Testament. All right. The Gospel this Sunday talked about the the uh, uh, the end of Jerusalem. And, uh, teacher, when will this happen? What sign will there be when all these things are about to happen? Uh, and um, he talks about wars and rumors of wars, but the end is not yet, which always amazes me. I remember I had a friend who used to... Uh, uh, put pins in the uh, a map where there were earthquakes, thinking that she could figure out when the Lord was going to come by the earthquakes. Well, he's, that was a long time ago. Uh, who knows when the Lord will come? But very interestingly, uh, there's another verse, I think, further on from this section in Luke that really does explain the whole deal. Uh, this is... Uh, 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 oh, no, that's the wrong one. I, where did I put that one from Luke? I got Luke here. Okay. Uh, Luke, the 17th chapter, the 37th verse. It's in this chapter, but it's it's further on. And they ask, when, Lord? And it says in the text, where? But where and when can sometimes be linguistically interchangeable. They wanted to know when this was going to happen. And this, to me, clinches this these apocalyptic sections of the gospels i i I think dr han is absolutely right that they aren't about the end of the world so much as they are about the end of jerusalem they allude to the end of the world but they are really about the end of jerusalem jesus said wherever there is a carcass the vultures will gather so often in modern translation that word is vultures that's not what the greek text has the greek text says where the corpse is or in luke where the body is it's quoted in matthew and luke but luke says body um, uh, um, matthew says corpse the eagles will gather you'd expect the vultures together but the word is eagle it's eagle aetos is an eagle this clearly indicates to me 
that this is about the Roman siege of Jerusalem. Now, I, I, I've told you that that um, a lot of revisionist or late daters for the gospel say, well, clearly this was written after 70 A.D. because it talks about the siege of Jerusalem. They have never experienced prophetic utterance, <laughs> and uh, we, we have. Uh, they should read about Fatima, which was right on the money. But uh, that's just terribly illogical to say because the Bible talks about the siege of Jerusalem that that the, the, the text must have been written after the siege of Jerusalem. It's very clear from internal evidence in the scriptures that, to me at least, that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts were written me being two bookend or two volumes of the same work. Um, and they were written before the execution of St. Paul because they don't tell you if he was executed. Moving along from that, what is meant about this eagles? Why would he say wherever there's a carcass, there the eagles will gather? The Roman legions marched behind standards that carried the eagle. The Roman eagle was the symbol of Rome. If a legion lost its eagle, it was absolutely shamed, and they would do just about anything to get their eagles back. This was a, a dishonor. You, you defended the legion's eagle at the cost of your life. Um, so Jesus, Jesus hearers must have gone, what? Oh, eagles, that's not good. They would expect him to say, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. And he doesn't. He says, where the corpse is, the Roman legions will gather, the eagles will gather. And that definitely pins this chapter 17 to the siege of Jerusalem. Now, what he was calling a corpse was Jerusalem and its temple. He says elsewhere, your house will be, will be abandoned. Uh, and whenever they talked about the house, they meant that's what, what Jews call the temple, the house. Uh, 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 the, the temple mount is called the mountain of the house in, in Hebrew, Har Habayit. So that passage, uh, the passage in chapter 17 of, of Luke and in uh, uh, Matthew, the 24th chapter, those are clearly, clearly, clearly about the Roman siege of Jerusalem anticipated by prophecy. And very interestingly, as I, I mentioned earlier, the Christians in Jerusalem were warned by a, a prophet of of the coming siege, and almost to a man, they left Jerusalem and moved north. I knew people who were descended from them. Really cool. All right, let's go to phone calls. Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? Whom do we have on the phone? Zeke from New Mexico. How you doing, Zeke? What can I do for you? Okay, Father. Hey, um... <clears throat> We were in a study group on Acts over the weekend, and mm -hmm. one of the well-read uh, members uh, claimed that um, Acts was fiction. So my question are twofold. Oh. What, if anything, in Acts can be considered fiction, and what scholars, if any, make such a claim? I know no one who claims it to be fiction. It is not fiction. In fact, it's a very interesting detail. Uh, there was uh, some revisionist scholars in the last century said early 20th century uh, said, well, clearly uh, Acts is, is fiction because uh, uh, there's no record that Gallio was ever proconsul in in uh, in Turkey, in, well, in the province of Asia, which is now Turkey. Well, they dug something up, and it was a stone saying, during the proconsulship of Gallio in Ephesus. You know, every time they turn over a stone in the Middle East, it corroborates a detail of the New Testament. And that is absolute arrogance to declare something fiction 
that clearly reflects the customs and the and and the the details of that time. Uh, that just is supreme arrogance to me. Uh, I know of no responsible scholar that says it's fiction. Does that help at all? <laughs> that nails it. I always look to you to be getting nailed. <laughs> oh, good. Thank you. Bless you. But yeah, I mean, I, I, that's one example that there's so many details in the scripture. For instance, yeah. uh, uh, just in the Gospels, the, the pool with five porticles, well, that, that couldn't have happened because the pentagonal structure was unknown in the ancient world. Well, they dug up the, the pool of Bethsaida and it has five porticles, four on either side and one down the middle. <laughs> I mean, we are so narrow-minded uh, that we can only think in our own terms about the scripture we don't know the world in which they live nearly as well as we think so there you go uh okay don't worry thank you it's history it it is it is definitely yeah. history especially luke well, and everyone in the group called the guy on it but uh i was i was looking for the authority so i know you well i, I go to you or listen to you so yeah, yeah you. just just reference that section on gallio gallio the good uh, who was the brother of seneca gallio the good proconsul in asia and Okay. That that that's a Thank historical you. detail. All right. Very good. Thanks for calling. Whom do we have now? Dear voice in my head. Mike from Phoenix. What can I do for you, Mike? Oh, Father. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I apologize because I have a, a allergy, so my nose is kind of plugged up. That's but all. My right. question is. <laughs> my question is, uh, Barry. Uh, Jesus' mother back in the Bible uh, yeah. was pregnant and not married. Yeah. Did the Jew, Jewish people back in the day stone people that were not married and, and pregnant? Yes, they did. And if so, why why were why was Mary not stoned? Because Joseph, being a righteous man, did not want to expose her to the penalty of the law. That's a quote from Scripture. Joseph. Joseph didn't want to—he wanted to divorce her quietly. He didn't want to have her killed, um, which would have been his right. And uh, uh, But he then he was warned by an angel in a dream, no less, not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife. Um, so Joseph saved her life. Uh, that's a very—I've heard other, other people say, no, it wouldn't have been a scandal. Yes, it would have been. I spent some time on that last week after I talked to Rabbi Lazowski about it, that— uh, so well, because they, were they married? They they were they were promptly married. Yes, yes. So so oh, okay. clearly, uh, you know, it had not become public uh, before um, before the before the marriage. So there you go. Hope that helps. Who do we have now, dear voice Thank in you, my Father. head? You're welcome. You're welcome, brother John from New Jersey. What can I do for you, brother John? Hello, Father. Please tell me everything you know about the Armenian Church, Gregory the Illuminator. They claim that that is the first Christian community in the first or second or third century or someplace back there. And I'm well, talking to a fellow about all this. Yes, yes. The Armenian Apostolic Church <laughs> is the first national church. Uh, the the uh, the origins of the church, uh, they believe that the apostles Bartholomew and Jude Thaddeus went there. That's the tradition, and they they uh, uh, converted Abgar the fifth of Edessa, and uh, they may have brought him the shroud of Turin, 
very ancient church, but it became, it was clearly uh, in 300 AD made a Christian state by King Tiridates III. So they're right in saying it's the first national church. Constantine didn't didn't make Christianity legal until three, I think it was the 314 AD, the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the edict of Milan and it didn't Christianity didn't become the the official state church for another century after Constantine. So Armenian the Armenian church is the oldest national church. That's true. But as for the first church, well, the first church was in Jerusalem, and uh, you know that 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 can that. Uh, so so does that answer the question? What do you know about Gregory the Illuminator? Well, Gregory the, the Illuminator, well, he, he went about <laughs> illuminating. Let me see what I can find on that. Hold on. Okay. Uh, clicking away, Gregory. All right. Okay, St. Gregory the Illuminator. Uh, he was, come on, uh, Gregory the Illuminator was born 257 A.D. So he was instrumental in the conversion of uh, Armenia, the, the, the Armenian nobles, uh, but but he lived around 300 AD, just when when Armenia d- declared itself to be a, a Christian state. So he's he's not he's not he was born around 250 uh, AD. Does that help? Excellent. Thank you very much, Father. There you go. There you go. So <laughs> the Armenians are wonderful, valiant people, and they have a fascinating liturgy, and they're the oldest national church. But they're not the oldest church. The, the the we're all the oldest church you know people talk about what's the oldest language in the world a friend of mine his father-in-law is greek he says all the greek is the oldest language in the world this is true of all languages because they involve evolve one from another in a fairly consistent rate so but uh, uh yes we're all the oldest church so there you go i hope that helps thanks for calling in brother god bless you whom do we have now do we have time for another one your voice in my head we William from Waco, who I will see next week, I hope, uh, or this week. I um, hope so. Yeah, what can Real I do quick, for you? What, yeah. what, what form or, or what liturgy rite does Mozart's Requiem Mass fall under? Uh, that would be the, the traditional rite of the, uh, of the, the traditional Roman rite of the church, the, the, our rite. I saw that last night done in Chicago. Oh, yeah. It's just this past All Saints Day. That is so gorgeous and beautiful and perfect. It is. It is. It is. That, uh, it that, made me oh. cry. Oh, yeah. I, can, I can't get through it without weeping. Cry. Yes. Uh, it's it's I, magnificent. It's magnificent. For anybody who's never heard Mozart's Requiem, uh, listen to it. It's, it's breathtaking. Speaking of breathtaking, Drew is coming up. <laughs> well, he's not. Yeah, he's pretty breathtaking in his own way. 